We continue with the opinion of the court in Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., the President and Fellows of Harvard College. Part 5 The dissenting opinions resist these conclusions. They would instead uphold respondents' admissions programs based on their view that the 14th Amendment permits state actors to remedy the effects of societal discrimination through explicitly race-based measures. Although both opinions are thorough and thoughtful in many respects, this court has long rejected their core thesis. The dissent's interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause is not new. In Bakke, four justices would have permitted race-based admissions programs to remedy the effects of societal discrimination. But that minority view was just that, a minority view. Justice Powell, who provided the fifth vote and controlling opinion in Bakke, firmly rejected the notion that societal discrimination constituted a compelling interest. Such an interest presents an amorphous concept of injury that may be ageless in its reach into the past, he explained. It cannot justify a racial classification that imposes disadvantages upon persons who bear no responsibility for whatever harm the beneficiaries of the race-based admissions program are thought to have suffered. The court soon adopted Justice Powell's analysis as its own. In the years after Bakke, the court repeatedly held that ameliorating societal discrimination does not constitute a compelling interest that justifies race-based state action. An effort to alleviate the effects of societal discrimination is not a compelling interest, we said plainly in Hunt, a 1996 case about the Voting Rights Act. We reached the same conclusion in Croson, a case that concerned a preferential government contracting program. Permitting past societal discrimination to serve as the basis for rigid racial preferences would be to open the door to competing claims for remedial relief for every disadvantaged group. Opening that door would shutter another. The dream of a nation of equal citizens would be lost, we observed, in a mosaic of shifting preferences based on inherently unmeasurable claims of past wrongs. Such a result would be contrary to both the letter and spirit of a constitutional provision whose central command is equality. The dissents here do not acknowledge any of this. They fail to cite Hunt. They fail to cite Croson. They failed to mention that the entirety of their analysis of the Equal Protection Clause, the statistics, the cases, the history, has been considered and rejected before. There is a reason the principal dissent must invoke Justice Marshall's partial dissent in Bakke nearly a dozen times while mentioning Justice Powell's controlling opinion barely once. Justice Jackson's opinion ignores Justice Powell altogether. For what one dissent denigrates as rhetorical flourishes about colorblindness, opinion of 
Justice Sotomayor, are in fact the proud pronouncements of cases like Loving and Wick Woe, like Shelley and Bowling. They are defining statements of law. We understand the dissents want that law to be different. They are entitled to that desire. But they surely cannot claim the mantle of stare decisis while pursuing it. The dissents are no more faithful to our precedent on race-based admissions. To hear the principal dissent tell it, Gruder blessed such programs indefinitely until racial inequality will end. But Gruder did no such thing. It emphasized, not once or twice, but at least six separate times, that race-based admissions programs must have reasonable, durational limits, and that their deviation from the norm of equal treatment must be a temporary matter. The court also disclaimed enshrining a permanent justification for racial preferences. Yet the justification for race-based admissions that the dissent latches onto is just that, unceasing. The principal dissent's reliance on Fisher too is similarly mistaken. There, by a four-to-three vote, the court upheld a sui generis race-based admissions program used by the University of Texas, whose goal it was to enroll a critical mass of certain minority students. But neither Harvard nor UNC claims to be using the critical mass concept. Indeed, the universities admit they do not even know what it means. Fisher, too, also recognized the enduring challenge that race-based admission systems place on the constitutional promise of equal treatment. The court thus reaffirmed the continuing obligation of universities to satisfy the burden of strict scrutiny. To drive the point home, Fisher too limited itself just as Gruder had, in duration. The court stressed that its decision did not necessarily mean the university may rely on the same policy going forward. And the court openly acknowledged that its decision offered limited prospective guidance. The principal dissent wrenches our case law from its context, going to lengths to ignore the parts of that law it does not like. The serious reservations that Bakke, Gruder, and Fisher had about racial preferences go unrecognized. The unambiguous requirements of the Equal Protection Clause, the most rigid, searching scrutiny it entails, go without note and the repeated demands that race-based admissions programs must end go overlooked, contorted, worse still, into a demand that such programs never stop. Most troubling of all is what the dissent must make these omissions to defend, a judiciary that picks winners and losers based on the color of their skin. While the dissent would certainly not permit university programs that discriminated against black and Latino applicants, it is perfectly willing to let the programs here continue. In its view, this court is supposed to tell state actors when they have picked the right races to benefit. 
separate but equal is inherently unequal, said Brown. It depends, says the dissent. That is a remarkable view of the judicial role. Remarkably wrong. Lost in the false pretense of judicial humility that the dissent espouses is a claim to power so radical, so destructive, that it required a second founding to undo. Justice Harlan knew better one of the dissent's decrees. Indeed, he did. Quote, In view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Part 6 For the reasons provided above, the Harvard and UNC admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. Both programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints. We have never permitted admissions programs to work in that way, and we will not do so today. At the same time, as all parties agree, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. But despite the dissent's assertion to the contrary, universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold unlawful today. What cannot be done directly cannot be done indirectly. The Constitution deals with substance, not shadows, and the prohibition against racial discrimination is leveled at the thing not the name. A benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination, or a benefit to a student whose heritage or culture motivated him or her to assume a leadership role or attain a particular goal must be tied to that student's unique ability to contribute to the university. In other words, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. Many universities have for too long done just the opposite, and in doing so they have concluded, wrongly, that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. The judgments of the Court of Appeals for the First Circuit and of the District Court for the Middle District of North Carolina are reversed. It is so ordered. Justice Jackson took no part in the consideration or decision of the case in number 201199. 
we've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.